Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to a crossover episode between Historical Yarns and The Archaeology Show. I'm Rachel Roden from Historical Yarns, and joining me is Chris Webster, host of The Archaeology Show. Today we're going to talk about Neanderthals making yarn. Sort of. Hey everybody, and welcome to the show. Hey, this is Chris Webster too. So check out Historical Yarns on the Archaeology Podcast Network at arcpodnet.com slash historical yarns. And if you're on the Historical Yarns podcast, you can check out the Archaeology Show at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. You can also find each of these shows and all the shows we offer at the Archaeology Podcast Network at your favorite podcast player. So wherever you find podcasts, you can find these shows and like a ton more. So what are we talking about today? Okay, so today we are talking about Neanderthals and making yarn. Kind of. So an article came out earlier this year in April, and it actually made the rounds on the sort of fiber Facebook groups and yarn and knitting and crochet related Facebook groups because everybody was super excited about it. That's where I first heard about this article. The name of it is Direct Evidence of Neanderthal Fiber Technology and Its Cognitive and Behavioral Implications. It was published April 9th, 2020. And the lead author is B.L. Hardy, and there's a bunch of other people on the article as well. It was published in Scientific Reports. So this is a really interesting article because people tend to think of Neanderthals as not being very advanced technologically speaking. They sort of have that caveman mentality about them. And as more and more time goes by and we find more evidence that they actually had a lot more technology than we realized things like this are starting to pop up. And this is the kind of thing that we don't get to find very often because fibers don't preserve very well. But in this case, a little tiny strand of what they're calling cord was found preserved on this site. So that is what this article is about. The location is Aubrey du Maras, and it's in a valley near the Ardech River. <laughs> I'm saying this totally wrong. <laughs> A tributary of the Rhone River in France. Care to correct me on any of those pronunciations? I'm not going to correct you because I don't know either. But we'll have the link for this in the show notes. So you can click on it and go read the article yourself and and get all the right pronunciations if you know how to say these things. Yeah, I definitely don't. My background is Spanish, kind of. So, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so this has been sort of southern east-ish France area, right? And the interesting part here is that the preservation allowed for fiber and textile to be preserved. And it's only the tiniest little piece of it too. So I don't think that there was very much fiber or textile preserved on this site, but they did get one tiny little piece. And it's just this tiny little piece of cord and it was found underneath a flake. And that flake 
and the piece of cord were in situ. They found them together. They pulled them out of an archaeological unit together. And they were covered in sediment and breccia, showing that they were at least contemporaneous, if not the cord was deposited earlier than the flake. So based on the like the way they were deposited in the unit, they can make that determination. So real quick, this small piece of cord was like wrapped around this little nodule on on this flake. Right. And then we're talking about not microscopic, but really, really small. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, we're both archaeologists and the excavating we've done. If I pulled a flake out of the ground, I mean, the first thing I do is like vigorously wipe it off on my pants. <laughs> so That is such a good point. And I don't really know why they weren't doing that. Maybe they had an expectation based on the preservation on the site itself. Maybe they had some sort of expectation that maybe they could find this. So they were taking extra precautions and not doing stuff like that. So when I read the methods, it was clear that they were pulling artifacts directly out of the soil, putting them straight into a bag and not really touching them or doing anything with them after they put them, pulled them out of the soil. So yeah, I think it was just a different methodology and maybe that was because of the preservation. I, I don't know. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, we've done cultural resource management archaeology. We've both also done academic archaeology and it's a very different set of tools that you use and, and, and a mindset that you do because in cultural resource management, I mean, you're really just trying to get things out of the ground as fast as you can and you worry about it later. But in academic archaeology, maybe in their previous research, they knew there was a possibility for maybe not fibers necessarily. Maybe they weren't even specifically thinking about those, but yeah. but definitely some sort of residue analysis or something like that, where if that's the case, I mean, they're probably wearing gloves because you don't even want to get your hands on these things and you don't want to touch them. You don't want to get your oils on them. You don't want to get your DNA on them if that's going to be a thing that people look for. And you don't want to, I guess, infect it or, you know, add something to it from the modern era. Yeah. You want to keep it as pristine as possible. Yeah. And that's a good point because they could have had some like ethnobotany, botanical type of stuff that they were hoping to find. And this is a plant fiber. The cord is made of a plant fiber. So I suppose it technically falls into that category. So either way, it's a good thing they didn't brush it off because they would have brushed that little <laughs> that little piece of cord right off of it. So it's, yeah. it's a good situation there. And I don't think I mentioned this yet, but they were able to date this to the middle Paleolithic time period. Which did they give a time range on that? They probably did. Uh, while you're looking that up, though, it's interesting because, you know, Neanderthals did a lot of things that, that humans weren't. I mean, humans and Neanderthals existed together, for those that don't know. Like, like pre-humans, not even pre-humans, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals existed together and more than likely interbred. And I think we've proven through DNA, if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to quote that, but I'm pretty sure we've proven through DNA that they did interbreed. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And... I mean, we didn't change what species we became, so I don't know if the offspring were, you know, biologically viable from a reproduction standpoint. But either way, we did interbreed, which means we interacted in, in certain ways with the species. So did you find an age for... I did, yeah. So this, the, the flake was found in level 4.2 of this particular unit, which they were able to carbon date to... They have three dates from that, 41,000, 46,000, and 52,000. So... That's years before present. Yes. Yeah. So that's the, the time period we're looking at. Which just uh, another little side note here from a carbon dating standpoint, the limits of carbon dating are about 50,000 years. Yeah. So, and, and usually carbon dating has a pretty wide error range of a few thousand years itself. So when you're looking at these dates, I'd be interested to note, and I don't know if this was even in the article, but what they used for the carbon dating and 
how they calibrated that? Did they calibrate it against Dendro chronology or anything like that? Because you got to really look at all the factors when you're talking about the dating. That's not really what we're talking about in this podcast, but I think it's important to note when you're reading these things, you're thinking, hey, they hit a date of 50,000 years on carbon dating and that's real getting real close to the limit. Because if you know anything about radiometric dating, it's the half-life of, of carbon-14 is, I want to say, 5,000... Close to 6,000 years. It's like 5,700 something. I can't remember. Which means half of it goes away every 5,000 plus years. And then another half goes away and you're down to a quarter. Then another half goes away and you're down to an eighth. So down around forty to 50,000 years, you have very little carbon-14 left in order to even count that and, and read it. And so it gets really... I might have been wrong about the carbon dating. And forgive my ignorance because I don't remember a lot about the dating techniques from my school days. But it says that the site has been dated by ESR and U-TH methods. Oh, uranium theron. Okay. Yeah. So, because one of the units, um, there's two units in particular that they were focusing on. And one of them goes back to 90,000 years. That's the older unit, which this like was not in. So, yeah. Some of those other radiometric dating techniques, I mean, carbon-14 is like the, got the shortest half-life of most of the dating techniques we use, but there's other like strontium and thoron and things like that that are other radioactive elements, basically, radiome- for radiometric dating that have longer, much longer half-lives. So that's cool. They they used multiple data sources for dating. Yeah, it looks like they've got pretty good dates on this stuff. So nice. that's good. So why is this, I mean, why is this uh, important to knitters? Why are they all crazy about it? Because the, you know, who, who cares about 40,000-year-old yarn? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first thing I'll say about that is it's really, really interesting to find textiles this old because textiles fall into what has been called the missing majority by some guy named Hercomb, which I don't even know who that is. But I really, really love the terminology of the missing majority because those are the artifacts that are perishable and that aren't preserved through time and we lose them and then we don't know anything about them. Textiles and yarn, of course, fall into that category. So the fact that we found that here is so exciting because it gives us a little window, a little lens into something that we normally don't have any information on. So I think that's one of the reasons why this is really exciting. And then, you know, knitters are particularly excited about it because (laughs) anything to show that our craft has been around for a long time, even though it's not even knitting related, it's, I mean, these were probably woven or cords for ropes and things like that. But still, it just shows that the technology was there that people could have been knitting 40,000 years ago. I mean, maybe. I mean, they always say that the oldest profession is prostitution, but I think it might be (laughs) knitting because those girls were wearing clothes. Okay. Well, what I will say to you is if you had listened to the first season of Historical Yarns, you would know that knitting does not go back that far. (laughs) But but clothing making, you know, because... We'll weaving. Get in, You're thinking of weaving. That well, I'm, is, yeah. I'm thinking of all kinds of things because we'll we'll probably get into this a little bit later. But you know, it's I guess it's trying to figure out what they use this stuff for, right? So, well, in fact, let's talk about it now because I'm wondering what the possibilities are from a knitter's standpoint because they what they found was a really really tiny piece. And in fact, it, we'll talk about this in the next segment on what it could have been used for. But let's talk about now because you looked at these things. I looked at. The pictures of this and they even ran it under a scanning electron microscope they they have all these high resolution images of it and i'm like yeah looks like plant fibers great let's you know good for you you deserve a trophy like what does it mean how can you right. look at it how can they look at it and tell that this was actually intentionally put together cord 
that was then more than likely used for something else because why would you assemble this thing without using it for something else? Right. So there's a couple reasons that they know that. They were able to analyze the fiber itself and they know that it is the inner bark of a coniferous tree. And that inner bark is sort of just below the outer bark layer is like this flexible fibrous material that can easily be formed into cord with a little bit more processing. And the, the fibers are quite long and they can easily be, easily be separated. So then you take these long fibers from the cord. They probably softened them somehow. They might have pounded them with stone tools or you could even soak them to make them softer. There's a couple of things they could have done. Of course, there's no evidence of them having done that in this case, but it's a possibility that you know how to do that. But the thing that they do know that they did is that they twisted them in a manner that could only have been done by human hands. And what they did is they took three of these long fibrous strands and they they twisted them in an S-twist configuration. And if you're a hand spinner out there, you are very familiar with these because we, these are terminologies that we use to talk about twist on yarn and and in the spinning process too today. So these are still things that we use. But the S-twist is clockwise. And they took these three individual strands, twisted them clockwise to make this S-twist. And then they took those three S-twisted plies. They become a ply once you twist them. And they twisted them counterclockwise in what's called a Z-twist to make the actual cord. So it's three strands of this fiber the three strands are twisted one direction first, and then they are twisted the other direction to create the three-ply cord that is what they recovered off of the flake. Now, you were explaining to this to me when we were talking about this article the other day. I don't understand why there's an S-twist and a Z-twist and not like an S-twist and a reverse S-twist. <laughs> why is it a Z-twist? Does that make any sense? It's just the direction of the slant on the twist. So when you do it clockwise, it, it twists in a way that looks like an s and if you do it counterclockwise, it's it looks you have to look at the actual cord yeah. itself, but the way it slants either looks S-ish or Z-ish. It's kind of a weird thing. I'll give you that. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's pretty standard in the yarn industry. You can look at and it's it's pertinent to knitters because depending on how you hold your yarn and how you knit, either an S twist or a Z twist yarn will either untwist while you're working with it. Or it will twist the other hyper twist while you're working with it. Like it'll add more energy into it. Is that why I can't knit? Because I'm left-handed and I'm always <laughs> untwisting my yarn? There's a lot of reasons you can't knit. <laughs> I'm not really sure the S or Z has anything to do with it. I'm blaming it on S-twist. <laughs> sure. Let's go with that. Lefty bias. Righty biased <laughs> yarn. Like everything else. Hashtag scissors. I mean, you can say that. <laughs> but if you just started knitting from the other end of the skein, then it faces the other direction. So get out of here. I can't get to the other end. It's all in a ball. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> then I guess you better just not knit. I guess so. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that's how the S twist and Z twist work. And it really has to be man-made. And if you look at the close-ups and we'll link to the article in the show notes, but they've got some really great close-up pictures that they did, like microscopic um, imaging to show the cord and the cord is twisted. The three plies are twisted together around part of the flake and then they sort of separate. So you can really identify the the Z twist of the three ply cord and then the S twist on the separated fibrous plies going out to the side. So really neat. What really gets me is that this is 40,000 plus years ago and the technique is immediately recognizable today because you do the same thing. Yeah. Which leads to one of two conclusions. Either A... 
that cultural knowledge persisted through time, 40,000 years, which is unlikely, or B, there's really only one way to do it. Yeah. I mean, there have been, I don't know if advances in the right word, but sort of differentiation of different ways to make yarn Mm -hmm. in the modern era, obviously. We have chainettes and various different ways of doing it, but that twist, twist on twist, right? Twist a strand one way and then ply it in the other direction to make a strand of yarn. I, I don't, I can't think of any other way to do it. So... All right, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what this could have been used for. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Historical Yarns Archaeology Show crossover with Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. And again, if you want to find either of those podcasts, depending on which one you're listening to this on, which feed you're listening to on, just head over to the Archaeology Podcast Network, arcpodnet.com. Also, you can get these episodes early if you become a member. If you're listening to this in real time and we haven't changed it again, our membership plan is, I think, $7.99 a month. We literally just changed it. And Tristan, our co-founder, is, is the one in charge of that. But I think it's $7.99 a month and you can get access to the shows early and a bunch of other things. So check that out. But let's move on with this discussion about Neanderthal yarn but really they call it cord because they don't i mean they don't necessarily know exactly what it was used for but let's talk about what it could have been used for so what did you get from the article well let's back up just a little bit and talk about their terminology versus sort of knitter terminology for yarn versus cord and all that stuff so it was interesting to me in reading this article it turns out that that single ply that single strand of fiber that is s twisted they actually call that yarn. I mean, usually yarn as we know it is, well, it can be any number of different plies and or a single ply. So, but they called that first level, that first twisting yarn. And then when they twisted the three of them together, they called that cord. So that's where the, the cord thing keeps coming from. And then if they were to go beyond that and twist, say, three cords together or more, 
then that becomes rope, I think, and, and it goes on from there. You can start knotting things if you have rope and that kind of stuff. So that's the terminology that we're dealing with. As knitters, you know, we call everything yarn that's twisted, <laughs> whether it's a single ply or many plies together. But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting that it's three plies that they're using here because as any knitter or crocheter would know, when you only have one ply, you you get kind of a fuzzy product. If you have two plies, you get a sort of bumpy product. Mm. And then three ply is where you really start getting a nice round yarn or in this case cord that you can work with. So I feel like the three ply choice is actually really deliberate on the part of the Neanderthals. Are there more than three plies? You can do more. Yeah. The more plies you do, the rounder the yarn is and, and smoother. But thicker too, right? Well, it depends on how... I guess how small it is. How small the plies you start with are. I think you get a nice... In the three and four ply, which is what most commercial yarns are these days, you get enough grabbiness that the yarn holds together nicely when you're working with it, but it's also round enough that it has a nice like stitch definition. Hmm. The, those That seems to be the sweet spot for yarn. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's what we're talking about here. I'm going to keep calling it a cord, but just keep in your mind that it's a, it's the equivalent of a three-ply yarn. Sure. All right. So on to what they're doing with said cord. It was made from the inner bark, like I said, kind of a fibrous material. I would imagine it's not the softest material in the world. It's probably pretty sturdy, more rope-like than yarn-like. So my guesses would be something like baskets or even nets and things like that. But they made a couple guesses, you know, net, cord, rope, something like that. Very utilitarian. It is interesting that it's found with a flake, but I can't imagine that they would be hafting a flake for any reason. Could you think of a reason? Yeah, it's hard to say. And I haven't actually read the article to see to see where the flake in this this cord and, and other stuff, like what other stuff was found with it and around it, you know, was it what was it in some sort of a what looked like a discard pile? Like like where people are throwing on the edge of their campsite, they're throwing stuff out that they're not using. Because flakes can be usable. Flakes, for those that don't know, they're usually the byproduct of making something else. You know, you're making a Back in that day, you were making an axe, a hand axe or something like that, or you're making a large stone tool or a spear point or something like that. So you you take these flakes off a piece of rock and you make that. And the flakes are generally discarded in most cases, right? But some of the larger flakes are sharp and usable in themselves. And while we look at the end product, that's our bias. Because when you're back in the day and you don't have a Home Depot to go to to get more things... You look at this flake and you go, yeah, I could I'd totally use this for something. And you might use it as a scraper to clean a hide or you might use it as a or, or to run down the edge of your your spear point or something like that mm-hmm. or your spear shaft or something, you know, to smooth it out. But they could be used for lots of different things. And I've heard of and I, I don't know of any sources right now, but I've heard of and seen pictures of like a like a club almost that has you cut a line, uh, you cut lines down the club on all sides and then you jam flakes into the holes as like a oh. weapon. Yeah, hmm. something, uh, not necessarily a weapon against other humans, but even just a bludgeon of animals, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, something like that. But you've got this weapon type of thing. And I've also heard of those being used as almost like almost like an axe to cut down a tree. You'd have to really have the flake sunk in there and only have a portion of it sticking out. But perhaps a cord could have been used to, to tie that on. Yeah. My guess more than likely, because I did see the picture of the flake, was that 
they're not they weren't used together and the flake yeah. ended up on the cord somehow and this cord deteriorated and was protected by the flake yeah and now we've just got a piece of cord on the flake because it was wrapped around that little like inclusion thing. or something yeah. on the flake yeah and it was and that wasn't an intentional thing it was just happened to be there yeah that was my conclusion from looking at the photos as well i wouldn't want to like rule out hafting it for some you know to a spear or something like that or to use as a spear but it does seem more likely that it was, they are contemporaneous, but not necessarily associated. But in hafting means attaching, for those yeah, that aren't yeah. aware of that term. And you typically see that with arrows, darts, spear points, where they'll they'll split the end of the wood, usually, is what's used for those things. They'll split the end of the wood, jam the point down in there, and then the, the projectile point will have these little, I'm doing it with my hands, of course you can <laughs> see that, but the projectile point will have these little ends on it, like ears, they're called, and shoulders, and notches, and around those notches is where they would take some sort of cordage. Sometimes it was a sinew type thing, you know, muscle fiber type stuff, or cord that they would make. And, you know, this is this we're talking, though, in North America, we're only talking the last few thousand years yeah. that they would have made arrow points like that. And spear points go back much farther, like atlatl darts, they're called, um, and then spears that you just throw. But they've been doing this over in the European continent for tens of thousands of years. Yeah, for sure. And they had to attach it with something. And a lot of times they would use a cord like this. So it's entirely possible that they were doing that. I think possible, too, that if this flake is contemporaneous and was used with that piece of cord... Perhaps they were, I don't know, the process. Maybe they were smoothing out the cord, had it stretched out, and this was a fiber that came off the cord, a piece that came off, mm -hmm. and then the flake was discarded because it was dulled or something like that, and they just grabbed another one because they had a whole pile of them and, or something like that because I've seen that being done before by experimental archaeologists. It's definitely possible. The only hesitation I have is that it's the piece of cord is already completed. Like it's a completed cord. It's not one that's in process. Like why would you do that if it's completed? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you don't want to destroy the integrity of the cord by scraping yeah. on it unless you're, you need to for some reason. But Maybe they were sawing through it with a flake. They might have been. Yeah. Maybe you know? they were cutting it. That's entirely possible for and sure. If, if the whole thing was wet or you were muddy or something like that, it could have attached itself to the flake or, or a bigger piece could have as well. And it just, that's the only bit that didn't deteriorate. Ooh, I like that theory. I like the cutting through cord theory. Although at the same time, again, I'm thinking about like how precious resources probably were to a Neanderthal. So I'm not sure that they would actually cut through a piece of cord that they worked so hard to create. Well, if you're making a, a long piece and you only need a shorter piece, then you're going to cut it off. And yeah. when I cut a piece of rope today, I'm willing to bet Neanderthals did the exact same thing. When I cut a piece of rope today, I'll take my knife and I'll wrap the rope around it, complete complete 360 on the rope around the knife oh, blade, sure. you know, holding both ends in one hand and the knife in the other and then saw through it mm -hmm. because you've got more tension and force that way. Mm -hmm. They could have done the same thing if that flake was in some sort of cutting device or attached to a piece of wood or something like that or just sometimes they wouldn't even attach them. It would just be jammed into a piece of wood for stability so you don't have to hold on to it. And then you wrap that cord around it and saw it, saw through it or something like that. It could have been any number of things. Definitely possible. Yeah. Definitely possible. Now, from a knitter's standpoint, I'm wondering, and I don't know anything about what they were wearing, clothing, things like that, but what else could this have been used for? Could have been used as like thread? Is it too big? It's too big for thread, I think. But, but when you're sewing like hides together? Oh, maybe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Actually, it probably would have done very well to hold hides and fur and stuff together if, if they were doing that. 
I don't really know what evidence we have for like clothing for Neanderthals, but Probably they lived in the cold, so they must have been covering their bodies with something. Yeah, this was like southern France, which, while hot during the summer, definitely cold in the winter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Neanderthals were all over northern Europe, so they're definitely in cold. Yeah. Cold climate, so they had to be doing something to cover their bodies in the wintertime for sure. So, yeah, it's possible they could have used it to connect it. I'm thinking of that like, like sort of X crossed stitching, you know, yeah. where you see joining two pieces together, sort of bringing the two edges together rather than like folding them, folding them together. So that's sort of what's in my mind as a possibility. Yeah, I doubt that they were using it to weave or make actual fabric because. We don't have any evidence of the tools that go along with that process. No looms or anything like that. And while you can do a very simplistic weaving process, you still leave tools behind and evidence of what you're doing. So, And that's a great observation too, because some people might be saying, well, how do we know what this is used for if we don't have any of the fibers, like you said in the beginning, mm -hmm. the missing majority, none mm -hmm. of that remains, but there's tools required to make these things. Right. And those tools do persist because they're made out of wood or they're made out of, I doubt they'd be made out of stone, but they, you know, they're made out of things that have a better chance of surviving the archaeological record. Yeah. I mean, a loom would probably be made out of wood, but I'm sure there would be some pieces of it that would be stone or more or, or material that would last longer, I'm, I, I would think anyway. So Now, this, this goes back to, because I know we talked about this, what would, how did they make, because if anybody's ever seen fiber made and you've drugged me to some festivals and <laughs> things where you see people spinning mm -hmm. yarn, right? Yeah. And I don't mean telling stories like we're doing right now, but spinning <laughs> yarn. And that's on this big machine with the with the big wheel and oh, the pedals. Oh, the spinning wheel, yeah, yeah. They didn't have any of those. No. But what is the technique they would have used back then likely to make this? So they, they would have used a version of a spindle. I don't know a lot about hand spinning techniques, so I'm going to kind of just make this up a little bit. But a drop spindle is what... Like, I own a drop spindle. It's a very simple... It's got a long pole thing coming off of it and then a heavy weight at the bottom of it. And you just spin it and then the yarn wraps itself around the like pole in the middle. I'm sure there's technical terms for this. So if you're a spinner, please forgive me. But as you're spinning, the yarn wraps itself around and then you end up with like a, a bobbin of, of spun yarn while you're doing it. And you ply on the same thing, but just going in a different direction. So they could have been doing something like that. Now, I believe they're called spindle whorls when you find those at... And we found them at various different sites yeah. over the years. I believe that that is performing the same function mm -hmm. as a drop spindle because that whorl would be the heavy part that would give some stabilization to the spinning and allow it to, to spin. So I don't know exactly how spindle whorls work. That would be a fun thing to research actually and figure out how native people would have used that to make yarn. But anyway, that's how you do it by hand. It's a very simple process, you know, so they could have been doing something like that. But again, I feel like we would have found, well, no, I mean... You, if it's made of shell or something like that, it might not last. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah wood doesn't always last in the archaeological record either. Like mm -hmm. a big piece might because it takes longer to just deteriorate that. Mm -hmm. But in... Uh, and if it's a wetter environment, it might actually last longer because it just stays moist. But the drier it is, the more it just crumbles into dust. Mm -hmm. Like here in the Nevada where we've done a lot of work, we never find anything like that. And most of the textiles or woven things like baskets and sandals and stuff like that uh, and duck decoys even have been found in caves. In fact, all of them, I think, have been found in caves in Nevada because caves have a 
a less dry environment, a less harsh environment, even in even in the desert west, a cave, especially if it's buried. If it's buried in a cave, it's more than likely going to survive. Mm-hmm. But finding those caves and then, you know, getting the academic access and permission to actually dig those caves is a challenge. So, yeah, we don't have a lot of evidence of it. And, you know, the thing that gets me, too, about the archaeological record is we write a lot of very conclusive sounding theories based on very little evidence because we yeah. find one thing and we're like, yay, we found something. And, and now we're making a judgment about an entire society and an entire span of time based on that. You know, like the Lovelock Cave in Nevada where they found duck decoys and things like that. Sure, you can probably assume that maybe other societies use these things. But can you assume that those weren't made just for ceremonial purposes for dumping in a, a burial cave because they found burials along with those two? Or were these everyday objects that were buried with the people, you know? Yeah, and you also have to like have the 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 genius hypothesis has to be in the back of your mind too. Like what if like one person came up with this brilliant idea but it never really disseminated to the rest of the tribes or groups yeah. or populations or whatever? Like I I like to think that all Neanderthals knew how to make yarn and cord and from that baskets and mats and maybe even sandals and the other things that you can make by mm-hmm. knotting things and making and weaving and whatever but yeah well, the, the thing i like about this discovery is it's not special from a from just a piece of material standpoint mm-hmm. it's special from the fact that we now have ev- evidence that not only did they did they do this spinning and and plying forty thousand plus years ago but that it's the same exact technique that has been used since then mm-hmm and which which more than likely means you got to think of this too they didn't invent that at this site like it's it was probably used for thousands of years before that. We just don't have evidence for it. I mean, unless this person invented it. But in archaeology, going along with the genius hypothesis and other things, you always have to assume what you found is the norm. And it's been that way for a long time. Yeah. Just yeah. because normal things show up more frequently because they're more abundant. Yeah. Whereas one-offs don't show up. As, it's like a, it literally is a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Not literally, um, but <laughs> figuratively a, a needle in a haystack mm-hmm. because you're not going to find the one-off. Yeah. You're not going to find the one person that said, hey, look at this. And then they were had an arrow through the head and never did it again. And you're also not going to find the very first example of it either. I mean, if we found this at 40,000 years and they were doing it before that time, this is, I mean, what are the chances of it being right. the first time it was ever done? Well, but if we look for news articles, you'd probably find one that says the first knitters. Yeah. <laughs> You know, or something like that, because it's it. it they say the first, but it's only because it's the first example yeah. that we found. Yeah. But more than likely, if we have found it somewhere, they're more than likely like the thousandth knitters. You know, because because it's common now. Yeah, and it's a complicated enough mechanic to get to the applied point that it's at that they found it. That there certainly are earlier examples that are simpler for sure. So we just haven't found them yet. All right, anything else to wrap up this article? Um, the last thing I'll say is I want to go back to the clothing thing about it because the one thing that stuck out about this to me clothing wise is that it's made from this plant fiber, the bark fiber in a tree. And we actually use fiber like that to make yarns today. Yarns that are super soft and very wearable, have beautiful drape to them. Some of them are even kind of shiny. So I don't think it is a huge leap to think that at some point they figured out how to not manufacture, but turn that harsh fiber into something that was soft and drapey and wearable as clothing. So I don't want to totally rule out clothing. Not in this instance with this particular piece of cord that they found, 
but it does spark in my mind the idea that maybe they were using it to make clothing, which I think is really cool. And it, you know, clothing has such a long, long history and the further back we can go, it's just, it's so cool to see that evolution of clothing. Yeah. And I think to really figure that out, we'd have to do a wider literature search or see if somebody's done one and find out, you know, okay, okay. So on this site at 40 to 50,000 years, we've got evidence of, you know, hand spun fibers, right? And then on this side over here, we've got evidence of what looks like needles, or we've got evidence of spindle walls or something like that, but no fibers. And then on this side over here, we've got, I don't know, evidence that they were using certain stone tools to, because there's fiber analysis on the edge of them or something, to cut these, you know, something else that would be a part of this. So you take all these pieces together and you say, yeah, more than likely these guys were doing this thing right here because we know they wore something to stay warm, mm -hmm. whether it was just a, a hide that they processed and it was more than likely animal hides because those are super warm. But at some point, somebody must have said, you know what? I really wish I could attach this piece to this piece. Mm -hmm. What can we do to make that happen? Yeah. And that's not that big of a leap to make. These guys were super smart for what they needed to do. I mean, the simple fact that they could come up with this 40,000 years ago just blows me away. But that tells you how smart they were. And mm -hmm. they were living and surviving and finding humans to mate with and uh, doing all <laughs> these other things. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say they were probably wearing clothing that they, that they at least sewed together with some of these fibers. But we just don't have evidence for it yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And I think my favorite part about this article... So this is... Here's Rachel's conclusions. <laughs> My favorite thing in this is that it is breaking down preconceived notions that Neanderthals were just dumb cavemen that barely scraped by a living by killing, you know, a squirrel here and there. And that was it. Yeah. It just, they were just so much smarter than that. They had so much more technology. And the more sites that they uncover, like this one, where they find these more complicated technologies and methods and things that they were using for their everyday lives. I just think that that is so cool. And I hope that archaeologists keep finding stuff like that. Yeah, it turns out they probably invented clothing, yep. art, and music. Yeah. And probably food. Yep. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. my conclusion is stop calling people Neanderthals to in indicate that they are dumb and stupid. Yeah. yeah because yeah. these guys were way smarter than a lot of the people that are out there today. Yep. Uh, and maybe, maybe we're smart because they, you know, maybe. interbred with Homo sapiens. So, there you go. Yeah. Injected that smart Neanderthal <laughs> DNA. <made laughs> of course, then are. why didn't they survive? I guess that doesn't really hold up as a hypothesis. But <laughs> Because as we've seen, humans just take over and destroy everything else around them, oh, including Neanderthals. Burn. I know, right? Human burn. <laughs> Homo sapien burn. <laughs> Oh my god. So well on that note. <laughs> yeah, on that note. All right. So we have a few more episodes planned out along this line of thinking. And if you have any questions or you want to talk to Rachel about this stuff, uh check out the show notes. We'll have contact information. Rachel does a lot of knitting and designing work. We'll have her resources in the show notes as well. She's Rachel Unraveled. If you're not on the Historical Yarns podcast and you're listening to this on the archaeology show, look her up on Ravelry and Instagram and Instagram, all yeah, those things at Rachel Unraveled. So I mean, we're talking about raveling things together, but she's unraveled, so I don't really know what's going on. I'm unraveling the mystery, Oh, obviously. That needs to be the name of the podcast. <laughs> All right. So again, check us out on arcpodnet.com or wherever you find podcasts. You can get both of these shows. And then also check out our membership because we are really trying to push membership 
because that helps us bring all this out. Uh, you know, we're paying for an advertising manager and some other things, and and we want to actually take advertising away from these podcasts at some point and just have a member-supported podcast. But for that, we need members. So uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash members. If you are interested in advertising, email Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We'll be back next time with another episode and crossover with Historical Yards. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks. What do you guys say? I don't remember. Thanks. Happy knitting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Happy knitting! <laughs> wait, wait, do it, wait, do it. Okay, do it until, I'm going to say, until next time. Okay. Until next time. Happy knitting! Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.